Amen. If you would join me in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, we come to the end of our Exodus series. And so today we'll read Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Let's pray. Lord, today we devote ourselves to your word. I pray, God, that you would instruct us, that you would guide us, you would teach us. And I pray we would be open to what the Spirit says to us today, to your leadership, and that we would leave this place different than when we walked in. Because we've listened to your word and we've obeyed your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, have you ever tried to uh, explain, try, try to make a point to someone and uh, spend a good bit of time explaining to them what you were trying to get at and kind of what you meant? And uh, it occurred to you that uh, the, the further, the more you explain, the more you talk, uh, the more confused they seem to get, um, and uh, by the end, uh, you really think, I don't really think they understand what I'm talking about. Um, and, uh, and sure enough, as they repeat back to you, in fact, they did not understand what you're saying at all. And uh, some of us, uh, th- this happens in marriage, doesn't it? Okay, uh, where you're having a conversation with the person that you know the best, the person that you love the most. And uh, sometimes uh, you're talking and, uh, and they're listening or they're talking, you're listening. And, and there's just a disconnect. Even though you're speaking the same language, you're in the same room, uh, you, you know each other better than anybody else on the planet. And yet sometimes we still just don't get the main idea, the big point. I think as we read Exodus, do what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We're having a disconnect right now. I don't know what's going on, but anyway. <laughs> Thank you for jumping in to illustrate my point. But anyway, um, the point is, uh, as we read Exodus, you don't want to get to the end of it and know a bunch of isolated stories and miss the whole point of the book. To get to the end and know about God leading him out of Egypt, knowing about certain things that he did, but not really understanding why this book is here in the first place. Uh, having biblical literacy is more than just knowing verses, having things memorized, knowing certain stories. It's really about understanding how the story works, how it fits together. This book was not written simply for us to be knowledgeable or out of our, for our curiosity or anything like that. It was written for our instruction that we might in some way respond to its message, that we might see the world differently, that we might understand who God is, that we might understand our place in this story. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to really uh, dive in to understand as we wrap up this series, the heart of the message. What is the message 
of the Exodus story? That's the question we're going to ask today. What is the message of the Exodus story? I want to turn, before we jump into it, to a couple of places. One we've uh, gone to several times before, but the first in Exodus chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Here we find God summarizing what he's about to do. Uh, We find uh, the Cliff Notes version of Exodus, of everything that's about to transpire. He kind of puts it in a nutshell for us, so to speak, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. It says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So this is God summarizing. Hey, this is what's about to transpire. This is what's about to take place. Uh, This is what's going on here. This is the heart and soul of the Exodus story. Skip over to chapter 19. We have looked at this a few times. Chapter 19, verse 3. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3. It says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So again, God's summarizing what he's done in their life to help them understand and kind of interpret what all of this means. There are stories that change the way that we see the world. And the Exodus story is one of the most foundational stories to help us do that, to understand who God is, what God's up to, the purpose uh, that God has for humanity. And so let's dive into the heart and soul of this message today. What is the message of the Exodus story? First, God is always working to rescue us. God is always working to rescue us. Without God, Israel was without hope. Without God, we are without hope. We have no hope apart from God, apart from the work that he did in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would be lost and dead in our sins and our trespasses and sins. And so this story is meant to help us see that in a physical and a tangible way that Israel was just lost uh, in severe, relentless, unending oppression and God had to step in. They, the Bible says that they groaned under the crushing weight of their slavery As they endured suffering, we can hardly begin to imagine a tyrant inflicting such daily harm and pain on the people of God. The turning point in the story is found in Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we find the turning point in the story. The setting at the beginning is oppression, it's slavery, it's suffering and so on. And they're groaning, they're crying out to the Lord. And the turning point in the story happens in Exodus 2, 23, where it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out in their cry for help because their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites 
and was concerned about them. So Exodus 6, the, the summary we got to a little bit later, that's in response to the pain and to the suffering of God's people. God was not indifferent to their suffering as we've gone to great lengths over the last several weeks to explain he was concerned for them. Notice it says he was concerned for them. It literally just says God knew. God looked down from heaven and he knew what they were going through. If you take a, a look at the world, I think, the reason we find so much suffering, one of the reasons we find so much suffering, sustained suffering in the world, is because quite often we turn a blind eye, so it remains unseen. Cries for help go unheard. And this allows those who are in a position where they could do something about it to remain unconcerned. If we see no evil, if we hear no evil, then it's a lot easier to do nothing about the evil and the injustice around us in the world. So we remain willfully ignorant of suffering and we turn a blind eye. This is uh, part of the fallen nature of humanity. But if you take a stroll with Jesus, just through the pages of the New Testament, you're, you're walking with Jesus. One of the things that just drove everybody wild was he saw people nobody else wanted to see. He heard people nobody else wanted to hear. And he cared for people that nobody else cared about. So you're, he's walking into a town and the crowd pushes the beggar to the side, marginalizes him, kind of pushes him out. And Jesus says, no, bring him to me. And so he listened, he saw, he heard. And then as he goes through the town and he's on his way out, there's a tree there with a tax collector in it. Nobody else wanted to pay any attention to him. Nobody else wanted to have anything to do with that tax collector. He was a traitor. But Jesus called him to himself. He saw, he heard he cared. This is who Jesus is. While Israel is famous today, it's only famous because God saw, he heard, and he cared when they were slaves in Egypt. And so we have this timeless epic of God saving them because he saw, he heard, and he cared. I want you to know something. Long before Israel experienced rescue and walked out of slavery, God was working to rescue them. Think about this. Long before they even thought about it, God was already at work raising up Moses, raising up leaders. You think about the people uh, that we went over, how they were gifted uh, by God to, uh, to make the tabernacle and to use their gifts and their skills and their abilities uh, to craft the tabernacle the way that God wanted them to. Long before they even knew that that's why they had those gifts and abilities and skills, God was shaping them. He's molding them. He's putting them in situations where they can learn that craft. They can hone that craft so they were prepared for the day when God called them to do something. God was working even when they couldn't see it. And even the pathway out of Egypt through the Red Sea was for the benefit of the onlookers so they could see God was working to save them. And I saw, uh, I normally don't bring memes into my sermons because it's not a reliable source of news uh, to trust. But I, I saw this and I thought it tied in well. Uh, it said, long before Zacchaeus needed that tree, God planted the tree. And you think about decades before Zacchaeus ever had need to climb up that tree and have an encounter with Jesus, that tree was planted there so that he could encounter Jesus. I want you to know something, whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you recognize it or not, God is working around you in subtle but profound ways because he sees you, he hears you, he cares about you, he burns with compassion, he's moved to action, he's always working to rescue his people. This 
beautiful passage in Acts, in, excuse me, in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, the apostle Paul writes, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So God put you where you are. He put you when you are on the historical timeline so that you might seek him and you might find him and you might know him. That's why you're here. And here you are yet again, and we're focused on God's word. We have this beautiful opportunity to listen to what God is saying to us. But hey, just because Pharaoh saw the mighty works of God didn't mean that he believed. He, he continued to harden his heart and reject God. Just because the Pharisees stared straight into the face of the radiant Son of God did not mean that they accepted him and they received him. And just because week after week after week we have God's word and we look into the face of Christ, who is the glory of God, does not mean that you're automatically going to believe. There are those who are stiff-necked who reject and push back and then there are those who are open to the leading of the Spirit and receive in faith. The question is, which are you today? Number two, the message is God is always working to teach us His ways. God is always working to teach us His ways. He's always working to rescue us and a lot of us, if you pay attention to the plan of salvation that a lot of people tell, that's where it ends. It ends with them coming out of Egypt. The first half of the book focuses on God delivering his people. Exodus chapters 1 through 19, that's the focus. God delivering them from Egyptian bondage. But the second part focuses on God teaching his people his ways. What kind of God are you? What kind of people do you expect us to become? They did not have to speculate or wonder. God gave them instruction. He gave them his word. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them numerous other commandments, as we talked about before. He didn't give them an exhaustive uh, list of legislative laws and stuff like that. He gave them some commandments. He gave them some laws so they might, kind of like a math problem, you, you work a math problem, not so you'll know how to work that specific math problem, but so that you'll know how to work other math problems that are like that, Okay. And uh, I graduated high school before I kind of figured that out. But anyway, all right, uh, that, that's the point. And so we've got these commandments. We've got these situations, these circumstances. We're to pay attention. We're to see the, the math behind it so that when we are in similar situations, we can work the problem and we can remain faithful to the wisdom of God. Here I think we find a significant problem with a popular level of Christianity today that's prevalent and espoused by so many. They are fine with a God who gets them out of slavery and gets them out of Egypt, and they're fine with a God who gets them across the Red Sea. They just want God to leave them alone after that so they can live life for themselves rather than for God's glory. And I think that's a significant problem today. We are fine with the idea of going to heaven. We're fine with praying the prayer. We're fine with getting our ticket stamped to heaven. Now just leave us alone and let us do what we want to do until that day comes. And if you talk to some Christians, the journey ends at deliverance. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And that's all that matters. The rest doesn't matter because we're not saved by works anyway, some might reason. I do believe this is why we find so much corruption and abuse in so many churches. The grace of God has become nothing more than a license to live immorally 
and to do whatever we want to do, knowing that after all, we'll be forgiven anyway. But this isn't how Jesus died. This isn't why Jesus died on the cross. A gospel that leads to personal corruption is no gospel at all. A Christ that leads you further into sinfulness is no Christ at all. God brings Israel through the Red Sea, but he brings them to Mount Sinai. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and then he gives the Ten Commandments. He is a God who said, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19.2 We follow a Christ who said, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14.15 So the Exodus story does not end on the other side of the Red Sea. Now they are going to enter into a covenant relationship with Yahweh, which means they are making a commitment to follow Him, to become like Him, to become a peculiar people out of all the people on the earth. They are to be a light to the nations because they are changed by the grace of God. I normally don't have long quotes, but today I've got two. And the first one comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he talks about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out an eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You were bought with a price. And what is God and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Folks, if you know the grace of God, you are changed. You're a new creation. You don't keep going the same path you're going, just happy that the destination's going to be heaven. It changes the path of your life. Because you've been going your own way and now you're following the way, the truth, and the life which is found in Jesus Christ. We must eliminate a cheap grace mindset in our own lives and in our churches. And this would mean receiving the instruction of the Lord. We love that phrase, seek first the kingdom of God. But we often leave out that last part. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We are called to conform to the image of Christ, which necessarily means that we turn from our way. God is gracious. God is loving. 
We can be the prodigal son and we, we can run home, but we've got to receive the Father. Yes, we receive repentance, but excuse me, we receive forgiveness, but there must be repentance as well. So what kind of person are you becoming? What kind of church, what kind of people are we being formed into? This brings us to the third message of Exodus, the story of the Exodus. God is always working to show us his glory. God is always working to show us his glory. This is where the story concludes in Exodus chapter 40, is with the glory of God, him giving a visible demonstration of his glory and his goodness to his people. Why did God work the way he worked to bring Israel out of slavery? He could have snapped his fingers, right? I mean, he didn't have to send Moses in. He didn't have to get Aaron in. He didn't have to go through all of this rigmarole to get them out of slavery. He could have just snapped his fingers and boom, they're out. Wiped out all of the Egyptians or whatever. He could have done that. He chose to work through people. And he chose to work in such a way that as people observed God at work, they would see his greatness, his goodness, his majesty, his splendor, and they would respond to him in faith. On the one hand, as we look at Exodus 40 and we see the glory of God filling the tabernacle, we see again God drawing near to his people. This was the plan all along from the very beginning. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people and he wants to draw near to them. God wants to draw near to his people, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but just simply out of his gracious nature, out of the fact that God is love and he wants to draw near to us because God delights in us. And he draws near to be enjoyed. That famous catechism, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There is nothing in all creation more life-giving, more joy-infused, more satisfying, more full of goodness than the glory of God. On the other hand, we are reminded of the holiness of God. Notice his presence fills the tabernacle. The glory of God fills the tabernacle to an extent that Moses can't go in at first. So there, there's this idea that God is separate. He set apart. He is different from us. He is not like us. And here's where I come to the second long quote. Uh, this comes from Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, and um, actually my favorite book. And listen to what he says about holiness. What is holiness then? And listen to these words. The words used for holiness in the Bible have the basic meaning of being set apart. But there our troubles begin because naturally I think I'm lovely, so if God is set apart from me, I assume the problem is with him. And I can do all of this in the subtlest, most subconscious ways. His holiness looks like a prissy rejection of my happy, healthy loveliness. Dare I burst my own bubble now? I must. For the reality is that I am the cold, selfish, vicious one, full of darkness and dirtiness, and God is holy. He's set apart from me precisely in that he is not like that. He is not set apart from us in priggishness, but by the fact that there are no such ugly traits in him as there are in us. God is God, wrote Jonathan Edwards, and distinguished from that is set apart from all other beings and exalted above them chiefly by his divine beauty. God is holy. God is lovely. 
The psalmist talks about the splendor of the holiness of God. And this is the God that we worship and the God that we are to become like every single day. This is why in Psalm 27, if you'll remember it from earlier, what we read, the psalmist said, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. You know that you figured out the main point of Exodus. When you get to the end, you know that you've received it in faith. When you get to the end, you say, oh, I just want to gaze upon the beauty of God and seek Him all the days of my life. This is the kind of God that's worth selling everything so that you might buy the field to find the treasure. The treasure is Christ. It's His kingdom. And the question is, are you committed to treasuring Him in your heart? Finally, number four, open yourself to the work of God through faith, hope, and love. Open yourself to the work of God through faith, hope, and love. If you would turn over with me to Hebrews as we begin to close out uh, our series today. Hebrews chapter 3. Throughout human history, we have proven ourselves to be somewhat stubborn. Uh, Any of you have that characteristic in your life uh, where we tend to be stubborn sometimes? Sometimes it's a good thing. But it's not a good thing if we are rejecting God's leadership and his guidance in our life. We have a tendency to reject gold for fake gold, costly grace for cheap grace, the glory of God for a golden calf. This is true of Pharaoh. He has all of these opportunities to respond to God in faith and to open his eyes and see who this God is. And yet he continues to reject, he continues to resist, and he hardens his heart against God. But it's not just true of Pharaoh, it's also true of of Israel as well. They have opportunity after opportunity to trust in God. And even as we see in our passage in Hebrews chapter 3, we see that in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And he's saying that using the example of Israel because they continue to reject God's guidance and God's leadership. So the question that looms large at this point as we begin to wrap things up is are you open to the work of God? Are you open to the work of God? Um, We know if people are open to the work of God as we read the Exodus story because there are certain things that follow that describe them, okay? If they're open to the work of God, then guess what? When it came time to put the blood of the lamb on the door of their house, they responded by putting the blood of the lamb on the door of their house, right? When it got time to uh, go across the Red Sea, we know that they're open to the work of God because they actually walk across the Red Sea. We see over and over and over again that faith produces faithfulness. It produces a different kind of lifestyle, a different kind of person. And so we know if you're open to the Spirit, because we'll see those changes, that transformation in your own life as well. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 gives somewhat of a commentary on what we just went through in Exodus. It says, therefore, 
holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house is greater, has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. A few things there. Notice that exhortation, that word of encouragement for all of us. Fix your eyes, fix your attention, your thoughts on Jesus Christ. This is a command because guess what? We get to control our thoughts. We get to control our thoughts. We we get to have say in what we think about. And when you wake up in the morning, as you go through the day, you get to choose what you spend your time thinking about and dwelling on and meditating on, okay? Uh, and uh, we, we allow a lot of things to influence us, don't we? Allow a lot of things to influence us. I, I just got to be honest with you, I was a little bit of a bad mood yesterday after watching the Baylor basketball game, okay? I just, uh, I allowed myself to be influenced by some referees. But anyway, we won't get into that today, right? Uh, But I allowed myself to be a little influenced by that. It kind of messed with me a little bit. We get to choose what we allow ourselves to be influenced by, what we set our minds on. And my question is, do you set your mind on the things of God, on the kingdom of God, on the Lord Jesus Christ, reflecting on his nature, on his character, reflecting on that story? If we're changed by stories, just imagine reflecting on the gospel throughout your day, meditating on what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us on the cross. Imagine just dwelling in that and sitting in that. But I want you to know something else that it says here, in Hebrews chapter 3. It says that Christ is worthy of greater honor because he built the house, okay? Notice verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. So what's the whole point of the Exodus story? What's the whole point of this tabernacle in the Old Testament? It's pointing us forward. It's a signpost pointing us forward to Christ pointing us to him and what he would accomplish. Because notice what it says as we look at verse 6. It says, but Christ is a faithful as the son over God's house. Listen to this. And we are his house. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the temple. We are the house. Paul would say it a different way. He said, we are the temple of the living God. A little bit later on in 1 Peter, it says that Christ is the cornerstone and we are living stones being built upon that foundation. So, what, what made the tabernacle the tabernacle? Whatever made the tabernacle the tabernacle, here's the thing. That's what makes a church a church. Think about that. Whatever makes a tabernacle a tabernacle, that's what makes a church a church. So the book ends, Exodus chapter 40, with what? With the tabernacle 
becoming a tabernacle. When the presence of God filled the place. And then what happens a little bit later on in the story? It says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then what does it say a little bit later on? It says that He's the cornerstone, and we are living stones. We are the temple of the living God. So what all of that means is that there's a place on earth where people ought to be able to experience the glory of God, the goodness of God as we've described it in Exodus. They ought to be able to walk through the, door, the back doors of this church, walk right into this community, and they ought to be able to experience it. Because we are all conforming to the image of Christ. We're all becoming like Christ. He's the cornerstone. We're living stones. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. They ought to be able to experience the goodness of God by simply walking through the doors of a local church. That requires faithfulness on our part, though, doesn't it? We're not going to drift there, okay? When Jesus says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow after me, that doesn't mean that we can be lazy about it, right? That means that following him, becoming like Jesus, is going to take effort on our part. It's going to take being open to the Spirit and faith and hope and love because as we hope, uh, that means that we believe in the promises of God that God's going to do what he said he was going to do. Now, how many of you... You will turn on the television in the morning and you will listen to the meteorologist to figure out what's going to happen with the weather. And bless their hearts, they try so hard, they do the very best they can with what they've got to work with, but no meteorologist is inerrant, right? I mean, they say it and it's like, well, there's good reason to believe that this is going to happen, but maybe not. And you really got to pray for meteorologists in Texas. It's like, well, you know, in the morning it's going to be freezing. By the end of the day, it's going to be 90 degrees in the morning. Be sure and put on a coat because it's going to be back to 30 degrees. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, right? But here's the thing. We make preparations based upon their word. So if they say, hey, it's about to freeze, what do you do? You, you make preparations at your house based upon what they say. Can I just tell you something? The Bible is the inerrant word of God. So when it says that Jesus is coming back and that we're going to stand before him and we're going to stare him straight in the face, that right now we see dimly, but one day face to face, that one day Christ is going to appear. When the Bible says it, folks, you better believe it because it's happening. All right? You better believe it because it's happening. The question is, as we wrap up today, are you open to the Spirit? Are you open to his leadership, open to his guidance, open to what he would say to you, to his instruction? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. You can look at your life and see if you're open to the Spirit. You can look at your life. You don't have to wonder, you don't have to question, because your life will be a life where you are constantly being formed into the image of Christ. And yes, you make mistakes. Yes, you're going to stumble and fall. And you're going to make course corrections when that happens. You're going to make adjustments. When things are revealed to you about your mindset or about the way that you speak or about the way that you treat people or about how you spend your time, you're going to make adjustments because Christ is more valuable to you. It's not cheap grace to you. He's worthy of it. And so you make changes, you make adjustments because you want Jesus and all that he has and all that he is. So are you open to the Spirit? 
Is your life being changed? Is it being shaped? Is it being molded? Father, I'm thankful today as we have this time of response that we, after going through this story, have the opportunity to see the world differently than we have before. To see you in a fresh light, your goodness, your grace, your compassion. To see our purpose in life, what we're here for. I pray that this story would change the way that we see the world. It would be a game changer for us. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, I pray today they would trust in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and the altar's open this morning. If you want to come and trust in Jesus, make a decision. Say, hey, starting today, I'm going to be open to Christ. From this day forward, I'm going to commit to him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust in Jesus. Invite you to make that decision today. Maybe you need to follow through a believer's baptism. The Bible tells us those who trust in Christ, they've followed up with baptism. Invite you to be obedient in that way. Be open to the Spirit. Maybe you want to join the church, invite you to do so this morning, or just come kneel at the altar and say, hey, God, I've I've been stiff-necked. I've been stubborn. I've been pushing back. I know you're asking me to do some things. I know you're asking me to go this way or that way and do this or that. But I know I've been hesitant. So this morning, God, I, I open my heart to you. Wherever you lead, I will go. Let's sing.